Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we have an exciting guest today, uh, somebody I've known about since I was in high school, and my dad lost a whole bunch of money on Enron. Bethany McLean wrote this book called The Smartest Guys in the Room, and she was involved in the documentary about it. For those of you young folk out there, like my co-host Ricky, who I guess was born after Enron, which is crazy, you should check out her book because it's the definitive history on that collapse. And... Uh, she's been writing ever since. She is a writer for Vanity Fair. And what brings her today to this podcast is this book called The Big Fail, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind, which she co-wrote with Joe Nocera. Bethany, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Well, okay, before we get into any of this, how does it feel as somebody who wrote about Enron to be paraded every year with one example, like, you know, whether it's FTX or WeWork or... You know, like, it just seems like everywhere I turn, even companies that don't collapse, like I just read that book um, about Ray Dalio, right? Like, it just seems like there's one case after another of these really flawed companies that seem to be collapsing on themselves. Like, do you feel like people learned the lesson from the the smartest guys in the room? Well, (laughs) no, (laughs) but um, it's really interesting because I think Enron is such a big deal and still stands out in our cultural consciousness because it actually was the first time in a long time you'd had a bankruptcy of a major American company, and it was the biggest one for a brief moment in time. And it was this moment when everything we've been taught about the market, that it always went up, that you could put your retirement savings in it, that big companies were safe, was suddenly proven wrong. And in the decades since then, it's just been proven wrong over and over again, such that Enron, as you said, no longer seems unique. It seems like the canary in the coal mine. And that worries me, right? You would like to look back and say, oh my goodness, this thing called, called Enron, can you imagine a major corporate American company turned out to be something of a scam? Wow, can imagine those dark days. And instead, now we feel like they're happening all the time. And so, no, the, the biggest lesson of Enron was that American business is way too short-term in nature. And I remember talking about it a lot in the wake of Enron. And 20 plus years later, we are still talking about that. And if anything, American business has gotten even more short-term. So I don't know what the fix is, but I know I've, I've become, unfortunately, a little bit cynical about the idea that we ever learn any lessons from, from these things. I'm left wondering how much of Enron would be that much of a scandal today. Like, if you think about like the laws that they broke versus the the morality of what they did, right? Like, the laws you break are the laws you break, right? And and as you'll we'll talk about in your book, often companies break laws. And to me, I'm a lawyer. It's funny to me that you can break laws, you pay a fine, become senator from Florida, yeah. or you could break laws and you could spend 20 years in prison like Skilling did or however long he spent. He just got out, I guess. And it just seems very arbitrary. Like, and, and, and when I was reading the Michael Lewis book, these kids were talking about, like, I, I forget which kid on, on SBF's team said, you know, I'm looking at these laws and sometimes there's suggestions. And I think like part of the art of the game is trying to decide what they're going to enforce and what they're not going to enforce, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there are a couple of different things going on. I think in the decades since Enron, prosecutors became really afraid of causing another Arthur Anderson, where the company went under and uh, tens of thousands of innocent people lost their jobs. And whether or not Arthur Anderson deserved it, it's fate. We can debate that. But it came to be seen as a black mark in the history of the Justice Department. And so they started doing more and more aggressively these deferred prosecution agreements where a company signs an agreement and pays a fine. And the, the agreement gets really heavily negotiated such that sitting on the outside, you can read this thing and you have no idea what happened or who did anything wrong. I've come to refer to it as the shadow justice system. And you're right. It's completely, I'm not going to say completely arbitrary, but it feels pretty random who we choose to go after and who we don't and who we allow to get away with things, whether it's the many of the actors in the financial crisis and then who we throw the book at from Sam Bankman-Fried to Elizabeth Holmes. So that's, that's one aspect of it. I think the other problematic aspect is that there's a big difference between the illegal and the unethical. I think what drew you to me was this piece I wrote in The Atlantic that is an excerpt, essentially, or an adaptation from my book. And there's nothing there that happened that has happened that is illegal. It's just profoundly unethical. And so that's, I think, another issue. Yeah. And one thing that that strikes me about American society today, and you get to this in the heart of your book, is to the extent we have an ethics anymore in this country, which is debatable, 
whatever makes profit seems to be what wins. And if they're in, in this country, if there's a way to legally or even sort of legally make money from something, it will happen. There are very few guardrails left. And I think this is a good transition to the heart of the matter in your book, right? And I actually talked about my dad who, you know, I remember going down when he lost, uh, he was down in Alabama and he was running an urgent care center. He's a doctor. I remember how shell-shocked he was during this whole Enron thing and he'd lost a lot of money. Then he then lost a lot of money again in the financial crisis. And then he wound up eventually selling his practice, it comes full circle, to a healthcare company named HCA. So full circle, Bethany, your book. And I am struck by HCA. I lived in Nashville for many years. I know a lot of people involved with HCA. Interestingly, Tommy Frist Jr., donated money. I was this charter school principal to to create a computer science center at my school. I'm very grateful for that. But I am also, uh, I watched uh, my dad's practice where my dad was very much about knowing the names of all of the people in Foley, Alabama, where he practiced medicine and practicing good medicine. And that practice now is essentially a an assembly line, you know, getting people in and out as quickly as possible. And so, there are a lot of things we could talk about in your book, and we could probably spend five hours. And, and if we have time, we'll do a lightning round on masks and vaccines and all this kind of stuff. But the three things I want to make sure we talk about today are the sort of three structural problems that stood out to me in your book. One being the hospital system that we have, two being the nursing home system. My mom's a nurse in nursing homes, and, and I found your explanation of that really interesting. And then three supply chains. So those are like my, that's our agenda for today. But let's start on hospitals. Tell me a little bit, and for our audience's sake, like as the pandemic is hitting us, right? Before we even talk about the pandemic and all the many issues that I think our audience probably is all too familiar with or thinks they are, what was the state of the U.S. hospital system in February of 2020? It was a system of haves and have-nots, both for the patients it treated and for the hospitals themselves, have and have-not hospitals. And it was a system that was really debt-laden in a lot of places. And what happened is that HCA was taken private by private equity firms and made a ton of money for them. And of course, as private equity does, they all copied each other. And a bunch piled in after Obamacare with this thesis that that was going to make making money in hospitals easier. And it didn't work out. And so you ended up with all these hospitals that had been purchased by private, private equity firms and laden up with debt that were on the brink of failure and, and struggling under, under their debt loads. And as a result of that, it's hard to tie a direct link to patient care suffering, but more debt isn't really good for anybody. <laughs> and there do end up being trade-offs between where, where you put your money if you have a huge debt burden. So we had this, this system of have and have nots. And back to your point that you made earlier about money dictating everything, we've allowed a perverted version of free market economics to rule in hospitals, meaning that hospitals that make money are perceived to be better and worthy of survival. But everything about how a hospital makes money is societally constructed and dictated by government reimbursement and has nothing to do with providing good care at a good price. So one of the most telling um, charts I found was, or pieces of analysis I found was a piece of analysis by Johns Hopkins, looking at the 10 most expensive hospitals in the U.S. based on the prices they charged for various surgeries over Medicare. And eight of the 10 belong to HCA because HCA has made a religion and a business out of figuring out ways to extract money from, from the healthcare system and now commercial, commercial insurers. Um, but that doesn't mean that HCA is good for anybody but itself. It's not good for American healthcare overall. In fact, it contributes to an expensive and inefficient system. And I think maybe just to round this up with a big picture thought, America is measured by excess mortality, did worse than other countries did during the pandemic, other developed countries. But even that is not really a fair way to think about it because we spend, I think, double what any other developed country does as a percentage of GDP on healthcare. So you would think or you would hope that when a pandemic hits, our country would be better equipped to withstand it, not worse equipped. And it just shows that whatever we spend our money on is certainly not making Americans healthy. Yeah. And part of what you describe is that the strategy and, you know, HCA was a pioneer, but now there are, there are multiple HCAs out there. They happen to be the, the probably the most powerful and, and did quite well during the pandemic. But what you describe is that there's two sort of structural issues here, right? One is you have these hospitals, like the do-good hospitals, and you profile a few of them in your book that take Medicaid patients, don't rip off their patients. By the way, often there's not a distinction between 
nonprofit and for profit. No. Something that <laughs> Stephen Brill, I thought, wrote, wrote about pretty well in uh, The Bitter Pill or whatever the book was based on that Time article. Essentially, that nonprofits pay their executives gazillions of dollars and they operate as for profits often. But there are these hospitals that are the do good hospitals, and then there are hospitals that are maximizing profit and often are focused on people in the private insurance, insurance market. Help me understand. So if I'm if I'm a Medicaid patient, hospitals can refuse me from entering their hospital. Well, they can't. Supposedly, if you show up at the emergency room, the hospital has to take you. But there are all sorts of ways to discourage people from actually coming to the emergency room of a well-off hospital. And then there's another issue, which is that hospitals are supposed to accept transfer patients if they have beds and a patient needs a service that isn't available at their hospital. But the increasingly for-profit hospitals, whether they are not-for-profit or for-profit, figure out all sorts of strategies to refuse to take transfer patients that don't that don't have insurance or that are on Medicaid. And so that's another, so there are ways in which the way it's supposed to work gets thwarted. You know, a friend of mine told me, and maybe this would ring a bell with your dad, his dad used to own a hospital in Texas. And as sort of a quid pro quo, an implicit quid pro quo, quo with the government, because the hospital did get so much money from the government in, form of, in the form of Medicare and Medicaid, the hospital took patients who couldn't pay because that was just sort of what you did. And slowly over the intervening decades, that's gone away and that's changed such, such that better off hospitals do everything they can to slough off the people who can't pay onto the safety net system. And then the safety net system is increasingly over overburdened. And you may say, if you're a hardcore free market person, you may say, well, you get what you can pay for with, with healthcare. Except as we saw in the pandemic, the truth of that line from Lyndon Johnson when he signed Medicare and Medicaid into existence, everything we can hope to achieve as a country comes down to the health of our population. And if we're not a healthy population, that affects all of us. Yeah. The weird thing about healthcare is it's it's it has... Outsized profits, we could say they're market profits. They're like almost post-market profits. I don't even know what you call them. <laughs> but they like but it doesn't operate as a market. Like you and I, you know, I imagine you're on private health insurance. I am I don't shop like, you know, even with the knowledge of Stephen Brill with the charge master, right? Like the document, you go to the hospital and say, How much is that cotton swab? Why are you charging me two fit? Nobody does that, right? Like the, the hospital sends a bill to your insurance company, they fight it out. And I have no idea whether that drives costs down or not. Do you? It probably doesn't. I don't think it does because I don't think HCA would be as profitable as it is if anybody were really paying attention to this because their hospitals are so much more expensive than other hospitals. And yes, I think they do a really good job. And I think the doctors and nurses who work at HCA are fantastic and really well-intentioned. But that doesn't mean that their services deserve to be as much more expensive. It's all gaming the commercial insurance market, essentially, and creating must-have hospitals that insurers need to have in their networks, and then they have to pay for them. And so I don't think anybody is doing the detailed analysis that you talk about. Now that there's supposed to be this pricing and um, transparency and hospital pricing. There are a number of startups that are thinking about exploiting that information. But, you know, the reality is, as long as our insurance pays for it, I don't know how much any of us are going to care. We've been trained not to care and trained not to do the work. Well, let me, let me, let me give you two companies that exist in the real world. One will know because we've been talking about it, which is HCA. And according to your book, well, let me get to HCA. I'll explain another company exists. And I won't use their name because although this is a flattering description, their investors won't like it. But it's a company I know very dearly because I'm helping them try to raise money. And they work in Mississippi, and their whole purpose is to find Medicaid patients and self-insured company patients and then use sort of deep inpatient uh, relationships to get people to have healthy habits that prevent or cure diabetes, decrease cardiac incidence lower metabolic disorders so that people don't need procedures in any near the volume that they would have, right? This is a company that is struggling mightily financially, but that has incredible patient results, like better than I've ever seen in any healthcare company. And they are going out to the Mississippi Delta. I mean, we're talking about the places where hospitals have closed. It's incredible. Yeah. One would think that's something society should want, right? One would think, yeah. And it's also in Mississippi of all places where not only do you have all the problems that exist everywhere else, including in like, quote unquote, well-funded Medicaid states like New York, which obviously we could talk about whether that is true it's well-funded or not, but certainly not as well-funded as private market. But they're in Mississippi where they're not expanding Medicaid. They're not taking Medicaid dollars. So it's like a perfect storm of bed. And then you have HCA, which as you've described, is 
going after a certain kind of population and certain kind of procedure. Tell our audience a little bit like, where are they going and what kind of procedures are they trying to rack up? So HCA figured out ahead of everybody else that where you wanted to have your hospitals were in wealthy urban to semi-urban growing markets where you had a lot of commercial pay customers. And then you could go to companies and basically say, well, you have to have our hospital because your people aren't going to be happy if they don't have access to this hospital. And if you want our hospital, by the way, you have to pay these rates across across our system. And that was a strategy that was sort of pioneered by a company called Sutter Health in California, which figured out that this this was the way you can get more more money out of commercial pay insurers. And not uh, incidentally, it's also why when President Obama went to Grand Junction, Colorado, and did that whole thing about how Grand Junction's health uh, care costs were so much lower and look at their results, he was looking solely at Medicare and Medicaid. He wasn't looking at commercial pay. It turned out the commercial pay in Grand Junction was way more expensive than any place else. So that's basically what HCA wants to do. And then hospitals also, I thought this was such an irony that in the pandemic where hospitals are overburdened and doctors and nurses are being worked to the bone, hospitals are going bankrupt and need a bailout from the government. It seems on the surface like a great irony, but it shows that our hospitals aren't paid to keep people healthy or take care of the sick. They're paid for elective surgeries, and that's the way the reimbursement system works. And so you want to be able to replace hips and knees and do all these kind of surgeries. And some elective surgeries are are essential. Elective is sort of a weird word, but that's nonetheless how our reimbursement system works. A, A guy who runs a rural hospital basically laid out this fable for me, and he said, and it, it ended with this idea that, you know, if your grandmother goes to the, to the hospital because of her diabetes and needs to have a leg amputated, our hospital system is really good at that. But preventing her from getting diabetes in the first place, that we don't do. Terrible. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I've called up every like rich person I know about this company in Mississippi, and I'm like, look, guys, this if is there ever was a company you want to exist, it's this because- like, and they're like, well, we always hear this pitch about like, basically like there are companies out there that are doing this sort of split the cost savings with insurance companies. Miracle to me that this isn't the most important business in healthcare because the idea that insurance companies could have somebody come in and coach their patients to avoid these procedures, saves the insurance companies money, makes everybody healthier. It's a win-win for everybody. It is baffling to me that these don't exist. My hope is that hopefully at some point this really breaks through. I, I know this is what people too, like- but- yeah, like I think this is what a cool tool Gawande was trying to do with that healthcare yes. company and all that. Till this day, I don't know why, and maybe this is what I'll do with the second half of my life, but like, I just don't understand why this doesn't exist and it's not profitable, but I'm calling up these investors and they're like, basically like, show me the money. And they're and it's just not there right now in the I system. Know. It's really wild, even though it would decrease costs, you know? I think it's because there's too much money to be made from gaming the system in ways that, back to where we started this conversation, are not technically illegal, but are terribly unethical. So if you, as a private equity firm, can invest your money in this hospital you're talking about, which does an enormous amount of good, and wait years, maybe decades for it to pay off because it's the right thing to do, and it's the right business, and it's what is going to make America healthier and perhaps even save our country because our healthcare our healthcare system is going to destroy us otherwise. Or if you as a private equity firm, firm can instead buy a struggling safety net hospital and sell all the real estate out from under its, uh, its hospitals to this shady uh, Alabama-based trust called Medical Properties Trust and pay your investors a billion dollars, leaving the hospitals then staggering under the weight of rent payments on land they used to own. But you get your return within a couple of years. Which one are you going to do? Well, you're going to do the latter. And so I almost think in order to make the business that you're talking about work, we have to get rid of the ability to make money in these I shouldn't use the word nefarious, but I want to use the word nefarious, so I'll just stop there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll I'll send you offline the name of this company. If you ever go Please back do. to healthcare re- reporting, they'd be an interesting place to poke around. And maybe there's an article to be written about the whole Mississippi healthcare experience, yeah. which is like very limited. They have like a perfect storm of low Medicaid spending, yep. fraudulent politicians who steal from their yes. public coffers a very limited offerings on the private market. Uh, It's just a disaster. But, and then like a very high need patient base. So, okay, so we could talk forever about the healthcare, the problems with the healthcare companies, but what ends up happening is as the pandemic hits, people need beds and they need care. And 
it seems like we as a country both had a limited capacity of of beds compared to other rich countries, and we weren't allocating those beds in an equitable way. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's it's hard to be 100% sure across the country. But the case study I looked at was in New York, where this idea that a hospital survived because it was profitable and that beds should be cut in order to remove costs from the healthcare system, but beds were cut from the places that could afford them, that, that beds were cut from the least profitable hospitals rather than cut under any system that said, where do we need beds? Who might need a bed in the future? It was cut based on w- whether the hospital was making money or not. So you ended up and just to pause you there, right? The, the, there's, a, there's a concept called just-in-time that is applicable to both this and the supply chain. Yeah. Explain like sort of the relevance of that term because it'll come up again when we talk supply chain. Just in time staffing basically means that nurses were called in to work only when they were needed and sent home it's flex time and sent home when not when they didn't need to work and it put an incredible amount of strain on the nursing system um, in the years leading up to the pandemic because who when your work hours are completely unpredictable um, and the same is true of the supply chain it was stretched to the breaking point on on efficiency the idea being that the more efficient it was the more profits it would generate but nobody thought well that's fragile this whole thing is fragile. The people are fragile. The system is fragile. So I think that's where it's it's problematic. Anyway, and so in New York, and I'm going to get the numbers roughly right, but not precisely, there were under two beds per 1,000 patients um, in Queens, and there were over six beds per 1,000 patients in Manhattan. And that's why the scenes that you saw from the overwhelmed hospitals were, it's it's partly because COVID hit patients with pre-existing conditions, but it's also because those pa- patients with pre-existing conditions tended to live in places that were that are becoming hospital deserts, or at least hospital bed deserts. And so the scenes you saw from overwhelmed hospitals in New York when the pandemic first hit were all the not well-off, all the safety net hospitals, not not New York's well-off hospitals. And then what exacerbated that, um, a woman named Dr. Elaine Batchelor, who who runs um, MLK Community Hospital in Los Angeles, talked to me about this trying to transfer patients, trying to get, realizing, she realized that her hospital, despite its small size, had more COVID patients than anybody else. And yet she couldn't get other hospitals to take her patients. And it's an open question as to why. Is it because those hospitals don't want a Medicaid or an uninsured patient that's going to be taking up a bed and costing them money for weeks on end? Is it because they are afraid they're running out of beds for their own patients and they need to preserve, preserve beds? because they don't have the staff. I wish there would be a congressional investigation into this, because I think that's the only way of really knowing what the answers are, because I think it's a complicated mix of factors. I don't think it's just as simple as bad people turning down Medicaid patients, but I think that's part of it. Yeah, what's amazing to me, and and this is, I'll put my tinfoil hat on for a second, but the power of this industry is something that is not well known. Right. You, you could point to the superficial, right? The fact that the former CEO of HCA is in the U.S. Senate and Rick Scott somehow survived a scandal that we probably don't have enough time to talk about. But it's what I alluded to earlier that yes. should have sent more people to prison, it sounded like. Uh, but then they had the majority leaders, a member of the Frist family in the 90s in, in uh, Bill Frist. Like, I mean, this is unprecedented power just on the surface, never mind the fact that these companies, like you watch, like I watched my favorite football team, the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and it's like the local hospital system is like the commercials and it's like what everybody gives their money to and they give charity. It's like, they're just locally powerful too. They're not just like, they are often the biggest employers or one of the biggest employers in a city or town. And um, they often pay like huge, huge salaries, whether they're nonprofit or for profit. And like the country clubs are populated by these types of people. The political donations come from these types of people. The regulations are so opaque that it's like ripe for people to lobby and get the right kind of thing. And then the average person is doesn't understand why their insurance bill is higher because there's so many steps removed from that regulation and what they pay for. Right. So. Yeah, I don't even know if that's a question, but I think let's let's keep score here on this. So if we're looking at, okay, the when we're talking about the pandemic and hospitals, we're saying, all right, what was the issue with the hospitals? If I'm hearing you correctly, number one is there, there's a 
full on no very little incentive to create healthy people in this country, which created just a wealth of pre-existing conditions that made people more likely to die from COVID. I would say that's probably number one. If we would that's say, number is one. And let's and, and let's pause there for a minute, because I know some listeners or some people are going to say, well, wait, what about personal responsibility? Don't people have personal responsibility to make healthy choices and to live healthy lives that will help minimize these pre-existing conditions? And yes, but the exact um, interaction of personal responsibility and availability of a healthy lifestyle and availability of health care, that mix is really complicated. And it's clear that it, it is clear whether personal responsibility is or isn't lacking, it's clear the other preconditions are, the other things are lacking, right? <laughs> Meaning ability to make healthy choices and to get healthcare and trust and trust the healthcare system and not believe it's going to bankrupt you or otherwise, otherwise destroy you. So I just want to pause on that point because I think that issue clouds everything and it's worth pausing and thinking about it for a minute. Yeah, for sure. So that's one. Two is uh, an equity issue of beds as a metaphor for a lot of other things, but the beds being the most visceral example of availability. Anything else on the hospital front you, you want to make sure we cover before we move on to the nursing homes and supply chains? No, I think I think that's really important. And I think it is less to be clear. I don't know that we will ever know. Back to that issue of pre-existing conditions, it's really difficult to say XYZ hospital did worse. The New York Times did a really good analysis that did find that the death rates in the safety net hospitals were considerably higher than in the wealthy hospitals, even when they were owned by the same by the same corporate corporate parent. So that would be an indication that, yes, that that is how it played out. But because the patients who were likely to go to those hospitals were suffering from pre-existing conditions that were, were likely more likely to cause a severe case of COVID, it's really hard to say this hospital did worse for patients. I think what we are trying to do in the book more is say the pandemic pointed out these issues in our society. And this is one of those issues, which is the cost of an unequal healthcare system. But it's not as linear as being able to say, and more people died in these hospitals because of their lack of adequate care. Right. Yeah. And I think what makes your book so powerful and, and certainly the focus of this interview, like wh why I wanted to make the focus of this interview, like what the like your sort of thesis, which is what did the pandemic teach us about our healthcare system that is going to be relevant, whether we have another pandemic or not? And, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and that's like that's why I'm spending less time on on the masks and the vaccines and all that, which I actually do think really, really matter. And, and there are some important points there. But those are the things that members of our audience are going to come in with these thoughts that are going to divide them amongst themselves. Whereas I actually think these three issues we talk about, the vast majority of people are kind of going to be aligned, I think, when they hear how bad things are. And, and one of those areas, I think, is nursing homes where, you know, my mom has been a nurse in nursing homes uh, her whole life. And one thing I, f I find fascinating about nursing homes in this country is it's a we have we have the largest group of retirees about to like hit the sort of they're probably hitting now uh, that will that will ever exist in this country either before or after, and it's happening at the same time where we have a cultural shift of individualism, like where you know we've always been an individualistic country, but people are moving away from home. We're not living in multi-generational households in any way near the numbers that we did before. And some stuff that you un like basically uncovered slash uh, organized for us. There are real sort of economic trends and business consolidation trends on top of those other two things that I think when you combine the three together, we're in some real trouble here. Yeah, yeah. I so I think we we I, I occurred to me more than once. Remember Charles Dickens' book Bleak House and how uh, chronicling the terrible conditions of orphanages in England. I think we treat our. You could write a similar novel today about um, nursing homes. We treat our elderly the same way uh, Victorian England used to treat its orphans, right? And it's not good. And it shows our values as a as as a society and how how flawed they are. I think we don't take care of our our elderly. And you know, there is, I started out my career as much more of a believer in the free market. And I guess I still am if the rules are set appropriately and the incentives are set appropriately. But to allow private equity firms into the nursing home business and into the hospital business, when a private equity firm by law owes a fiduciary duty to its investors, that's, that's their most important constituent, constituency. You just, the, the problems are right there to be seen. And the conditions in nursing homes that have been owned by private equity are demonstrably terrible. 
Um, the problems are deeper than that. It's not just private equity, but private equity and their monomaniacal focus on profit certainly has not made the situation better. They've made it worse, which I think tells a larger story about the private equity business too and the flaws in capitalism. Because if you are a believer in capitalism, then nobody should be able to make a lot of money by making something worse, right? <laughs> they should have to make it better in order to make a lot of money. I'm, I'm all for that and not for the making it worse and, and, make, and making a lot of money. It's just, it's, it's really a mess. And so, so what happens here is these entities use debts, which was, as you've, you laid out, and we probably won't have enough time to talk about this, was easier to come by during this period of time leading up to the pandemic than any point in world history, probably. And so they have cheap debt. They use it to acquire mom and pop shops, which, if we're honest, weren't always great to begin with. And, uh, and in some cases, you know, they, they, they relied on previously unscrupulous actors who tried and failed to do other really bad things as well. So I don't want to just make this about private equity, but they, they then wind up gobbling up all of these companies, these nursing home companies, and then putting that debt on the books of the nursing home companies, which puts great pressure to not maximize care, but to increase profits. Sometimes there's a short-term incentive here because they spin these things out. They're not looking at the long-term health of these companies that leads to really bad outcomes. And, and in your book, you pointed to a couple of examples of like how when the pandemic hit, some of these places were just true disaster zones. Yeah. It's clearer in nursing homes than it is in, in hospitals that the disaster zone aspect of it um, and the ways in which co co cutting corners on costs um, turned out to be a real problem in a pandemic. Because if you were well-intentioned and have money to spend, you could protect your population from, from COVID. If you weren't, then you couldn't. But that, you, I think your, your summary is really good. Another aspect of what they did, which was done in hospitals as well, was the sale of real estate, taking the real estate under the nursing homes and selling it to what's known as a REIT, a real estate investment trust, and getting your money out that way, which, again, is perfectly legal. And I don't, by the way, just to be clear, I don't blame private equity for this. I blame our government for not setting the right rules. In the end, a capitalist system can only function because government sets the right rules for it. And if government won't set the right rules for it, then... Then, then it's it's not going to function. It's going to do what it what it has done. Yeah, and it makes me think like I try. I think of each one of these categories as like what's the company or nonprofit or law to change, and sometimes you need all three to help make the system better. So I think in in part one, you know, it's companies like the company I mentioned in Mississippi who are doing healthcare a different way. It's changing the law to allow them to be profitable to do that. It's also investment in more public hospitals with the right kinds of incentives, more aggressive governance standards to ensure that boards of directors and CEOs of nonprofit health institutions are behaving as such. We can go transparency requirements on charge masters, all that. On this case, if I had an audience with with Mackenzie Bezos or something, I would tell her, I actually think like an amazing business model right now that I actually do think could be profitable too. You don't have to set it up as a nonprofit. It's just a really well-run ethical chain of nursing homes. And, and there, there are those things. Like there's a great book called uh, How to Live Forever, which I think is a really good book about individual nursing homes that do really good work, but among other things. But I, that's what I would do. If I was like, if I was sitting on billions of dollars, I'd be like, all right, like this is, this is going to be a great business. Yeah. But because people are going to be entering these places and you could take some of the assumptions, like Genesis is the name of the company that you yes. write about. Yeah. So Genesis had this 37-year-old CEO, right, who comes in in the 80s, I guess, and he's like, all right, nursing homes themselves aren't profitable, but if we take nursing homes and then use it as a vehicle to get all sorts of other care accomplished, then they could be profitable. And he was right for a short period of time, and then they went bankrupt yeah. and got scooped yeah. up by private equity. But a do-gooder could do that and say, all right, let's let's use nursing homes to do really good care, prolong life, et cetera. They would need a little bit of cooperation from the federal government to allow them to make money to do good care. But I do think you could do it. Well, 
It depends on you do it for whom, right? You can definitely do it for better off Americans who have money to pay for it. And you can do it for people who can afford insurance for long-term care. Whether you can do it for the vast majority of Americans without a wholesale change to how we think about our elderly and how, how we provide for them, I, that, 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 that I don't know. It's definitely doable for a segment of the population. You need Medicare to go back to treating long-term care. Because you wrote about, I think, I might be wrong about this, but you wrote that Medicare used to treat long-term care as reimbursable. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we need, we need some, if, if we are going to view taking care of our elderly as a, as a societal priority, we need, we need whole scale changes, but that's, <laughs> that's part of the problem with this whole conversation is that I actually do think we need whole scale changes. I almost think you have to rip the system out and just start from the beginning because the fiddling with it just isn't working. And how we get to the place, if the pandemic didn't get us to a place where we're willing to talk about ripping the system out, I, I don't know what will. Well, this is what's fascinating. We, we wound up ripping each other apart during the pandemic yeah, over right. the masks, whether masks work or not. You start the book with masks. And I think it's really interesting because I'm left reading what you wrote on masks and being like, wearing masks, if I'm thinking about it as an individual, maybe makes sense. The mandate probably doesn't make sense. And it's like, the thing is, what does that even do for us, that, that conversation until we need masks again? Like it teaches us like a lot of things. And, and you talk about this in the book. How do we treat science? How do we treat experts? How do experts exercise more humility? How do we listen to people who are outcasts and who have opinions that challenge consensus? I mean, there's a lot we could learn from that that moves forward. But the precise thing, which is the mask, is probably a little less helpful. And then the precise thing, which is the hospital, the nursing home, and then the supply chain, which we'll talk about now, you know, like, but we wound up having all these fights, but we weren't having fights about hospital, like, you know, hospital no, system you're, structures. You're, you're so right. And I hadn't thought about that. It's almost as if the powers that be in our society, if you were conspiracy theorist, and I have a little bit of that in me, but you would <laughs> think that, that all of this stuff and the ways in which we turned on each other, pointing fingers about what Florida was doing and accusing Florida of killing people and pointing fingers at California and accusing them of killing small business and pointing fingers at each other over masks and over whether or not you believed in lockdowns was all just to distract from the real issues, which are these really substantive issues in our and for our country going forward. Um, and that, that it was all maybe <laughs> that's interesting. Maybe it was all a giant um, um, gorilla parading across the street screen, right? <laughs> well, I, I think like what's fascinating and you do a good job of explaining the rationale, even for things that you wind up being pretty hard on people about is like, you give the reasons why people do things. And I think in reading your book, even the worst actors, like a lot of people, like in, for instance, in the Trump administration who just did very self-interested things, you can at least understand why they did what they did. And there actually were some heroes within that administration that I think my fellow liberals like would, would have a hard time acknowledging. But if you read it, you'll see there are people who fought really hard for the right thing. And, and as you put it, some people who defrocked themselves on other issues were fighting the good fight at various points correctly. Like Navarro, I think might be one of those people, if I'm remembering correctly, they were right at certain points at, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. but that's yeah. true of all of us, right? Like I was, I was wrong about so much about this pandemic. But that's what I love that you're able to say that because I think so many of us are still locked in this self-righteousness about it where we can't admit that we were, that we were wrong about things because our sense of surety became a badge of self-righteousness and became part of our identity, our, our sense of ourselves as good people, instead of being able to say, this is a novel pathogen, we don't really know, and we still don't know. And it's shocking all these years later how much we still don't know. Yeah. I mean, even like the Fauci stuff around his critical mistake early on, which I think is treating this like a, a an influenza outbreak and assuming that people who weren't exhibiting symptoms couldn't spread it might have that science wrong, but like basically like not having enough humility early on. Even then I understand it's like this guy was old and he'd been in government so long that he was just like, all right, it, it had huge consequences uh, and yeah. he rebounded, you know, but I understand where he was. I do too. My co-author and I disagree on this a little bit. He's harder on Fauci than, than I am. I think in the end, if our leaders didn't like what Fauci was saying, it was their responsibility as leaders to say, yes, this guy is a doctor. His whole 
mode of being is to try to save lives and try to prevent people from dying. So he's going to recommend lockdowns. He's going to recommend everything he can possibly think of that might make people safer without regard for the economy, without regard for people's ability to make a living, without regard for whether children should be in school or not, because that's that's how he's wired. And if we don't like it, it's, we're the elected leaders. It's our responsibility to say this, this is what we're going to do, and we're not going to let him dictate what the country does. And so I think the default to Fauci is a is a sign of another problem, which is a lack of leadership, a lack of accountability among our leaders. Yeah. And I think like in various cases, people and, and Fauci, I think, wasn't fast enough sometimes to adjust quickly enough and, and then sometimes wasn't fast enough to explain why he adjusted, like, for instance, with the mask shift. But they did adjust. And I think this is what I think they should have learned, which is like the way that like if you're in a pandemic, if you're moving forward is to say at this moment, this is what we understand and why. This could change <laughs> like we, like this is a this is this is a new pathogen and we're going to learn about it based on history. This is what we anticipate to be true. Uh, but then you also have to be a little bit more rigorous. I think like when I am being hard on him, it, it feels like he wasn't rigorous enough early on. OK, but I'm getting too deep into the stuff that is divisive that people aren't going to like. Let's let's talk about supply chains. So why was it that the United States did not have enough uh, equipment, PPE equipment. There's the sort of proximate issue, which was Obama had requested more in a funding bill that was knocked down yeah. for some reasons, which I don't want to necessarily go through. But what's more of like the, what's the sort of systemic issue, not the sort of narrow question on, on that request, which I don't think would have solved this issue anyway. No, the far bigger issue is outsourcing, as we all know, outsourcing of everything such that we can't make things here anymore. So all the masks and gowns and so many other things were made in China and made overseas. And it turns out that when a pandemic hits, a global supply chain is an awfully fragile thing. And we saw that during, through the years of the pandemic and even through to today, um, rebounding in all sorts of ways. I mean, obviously, semiconductors, the, the, the pandemic showed the fragility of the semiconductor supply chain, too. And we're still now trying to live with that and trying to figure out what do we need to do here in America and can we do it here here in America? But to me, the analogy is to people. You stretch everything so thin, including people, workers in healthcare and teachers. You stretch them so thin and you stretch a supply chain so thin that every piece of it needs to click perfectly. And then something hits that disrupts it or that makes things, makes life worse for those people. And lo and behold, there's zero resiliency. It's all gone. And so I wish that was a conversation that we could have on a serious level, that there is, at some point, there is a trade-off between efficiency and resiliency. And if you want resiliency, you have to build a little bit of lack of efficiency um, in, into your system. And maybe you have to make some things here. <laughs> yeah. And you have this history of, I mean, you go all the way back to Nixon talking about how the various sort of diplomats and, and cabinet members and people in the White Houses and the Treasury Department were picking up on other countries with certain pr protectionist tendencies like Japan, but certainly not limited to Japan. Basically like, oh, this is interesting. And then kind of continuing on with a sort of radical free market theory to be like, even if they're protectionist, we will take whatever we can get from them and open up our economy basically as much as we can and move away from tariffs and other protective measures, even on sort of key national security areas like, like the PPE we're talking about, under some theory that it'll help us in our economy because goods will be cheaper and yada, yada, yada. And that we kind of like, we kind of operated by our own like set of rules while most other countries were kind of looking out for themselves more. Like, I don't know if I'd ever seen that argument before, but do I have that right? I think that's basically about right. I might be a little bit more, uh, once again, I'm, I'm risking sounding like a conspiracy theorist again, but I think our elite made a lot of money from the ways in which we pursued globalization and the no holds barred way in which we, we, we pursued global, globalization. I don't think anybody really cared about whether the trickle down effects would be real or not. And because if people had cared, you would have noticed very early on that it wasn't quite working for everybody. And there would have been some sort of um, hit pause that did not happen. So I think part of the story here is the segmentation of our society and the ways in which the elite are more of a global elite and less concerned about the well-being of the country and of their neighbors. And look, there are good things about globalization. I think it probably has made the world safer. I mean, 
You might debate that now with the situation in Taiwan and Ukraine and what's happening in the Middle East. But if it weren't for globalization and for overlapping business interests, I mean, we might be in a third world war by now. And so I think I think it probably does make the world safer. That's an interesting debate to be had, but I think it probably does. It has made good, goods cheaper in America. I would argue that's probably not a good thing. We don't need to consume more here than we do, either environmentally or, or, or for any other reason. But there have been benefits to it. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I think a, re, a complete retreat from globalization might leave everybody saying, oh, globalization wasn't so bad after all. I just think we need to do it more mindfully. Yeah, I, I think it's like, I, I just, I, this is related to the other two topics in the sense that what wins out is capitalism. And it's like, and the thing is, I am like, anybody who's a long time listener to this podcast knows I'm I'm like a fairly skeptical person when it comes to a lot of regulation. And I, and I actually think yeah, like too. one of the things that makes our country special and probably why our GDP has been, you know, holding steady stronger than a lot of other countries is that we get out of the way often to let people do the kinds of things they need to do. And I think often that does help people, but I think we've now, we've now let it get to near a hundred percent of our value system. Whereas yes. I think we need to make room for patriotism and a sense of social responsibility and yes. kindness <laughs> and just like a sense of doing the right thing, which I just, I don't see enough evidence of it anywhere anymore in our society. I think you and I think you and I are totally in agreement. I'm a believer in capitalism too. I think it's like Winston Churchill's old thing about democracy. The worst system in the world was the possible exception of everything else that's ever been ever been tried. Right. And I think there are a lot of really good things that come about it that come from it. But I think we've forgotten two things. We've forgotten that maybe capitalist values don't belong in all spheres of life. Maybe there's some areas of life that should be exempt from it. That making money is not the sole measure of right and wrong. It's funny, as we've become more and more of a secular society, we've become more and more religious about money, right? It's as if money became, took the place of God in some ways. And then I think we've forgotten that the freest of free markets isn't actually that free. It depends on society, government setting the right rules for how the market is going to function. And if you don't set the right rules, then you don't get a market that you like very much. And I, people get mad at me when I say that, but I, I point to the existence of bankruptcy court or the existence of a limited liability corporation. Those are gifts from society and government to the market. And free market wouldn't function without bankruptcy law. So what is that? It's government setting the laws, right? And that's you, just, you have to set the laws in a way that makes sense and that incentivizes the market correctly. If you set it in a screwed up way, like in healthcare, you get a really screwed up system. Yeah. And I have a theory about this. I just spent a month in India and I, and I was like really spending a lot of time on the question of Narendra Modi. I'm doing a podcast with Crooked Media about Modi oh, and his rise and everything. Oh, I can't wait to, I can't wait to listen to that. that it's, it'll it'll really be really wonderful. interesting. But I had this realization that I think one day maybe it'll be a book. Um, I have to really think through it. But in looking at Modi, I started to think about, well, okay, I come from the Democratic Party. I work for Obama. And we have been struggling in a way. I mean, he didn't because he was Obama, but he was almost an anomaly uh, and I think covered up for some structural problems within the party. And I was thinking to myself and looking at Modi, right-wing populist movements, they either have religion explicitly or they have a new value system that they're proposing, right? In the case of Trump, right? Like, yes, there's religion, but there's a new value system. They're going up against these coalitions like the Congress Party in India or the Labor Party in Israel or the Democratic Party in the United States or the Labor Party in the United Kingdom that allowed themselves to get so tethered to capitalism, but are secular, both in the strict sense of the word, but also in the value sense, there really isn't a, there is a very stale, like if you could squint and say the Congress Party is about pluralism and yet, but they were corrupt, right? And I think the people would say the same thing about the Democratic Party is to be like, oh, you're about you know, looking out for the downtrodden or yada, yada, yada. But like, it's hard to square with NAFTA and Rubin's policies at Treasury or Larry Summers, who seems to show up everywhere and carry water for any powerful person that wants to call him, including a week ago. And yes. it's like, and I think Trump and Modi and these people seized on something really real, which is you have a morally bankrupt philosophy. It's almost non-existent on the left in a lot of places because you have be, you've fully embraced capitalism. And then- on the right, we have a religion. We either have religion, like Netanyahu or Modi, or we have a new religion. And I think this is an issue that liberal democracies are facing right now. That's a really good summary. That's a really good summary. 
Yeah. So I don't know. That's what I've been, it's worrying me. Uh, but okay. Let me ask you one question. Of all of the issues, lockdowns, masks, vaccines, school closures, like the contentious issues, in researching this book, which of those were you the most surprised by what you learned? Uh, surprised is the wrong word, but I was- Or would our audience be surprised by, you know? Surprised. Um, surprise, surprised. Um, I don't think this is surprising. I'm the most upset by school closures. I, I And I think that's an issue that our country is going to have to reckon with because we have something like a hundred, couple hundred thousand kids who have just gone missing. The educational gaps are huge. It's another way in which we made a mockery of our values, that our values are supposed to be to protect the least privileged and particularly the least privileged children. And instead, we screwed them. And we did something that most countries around the world didn't do by closing our schools the way the, the way we did. Maybe that's a good, maybe that's surprise that the discrepancy between how we treated school children and how other countries treated them, I would never have guessed that headed into the pandemic. If you could have said that other countries will have their children back in school and we in the United States will not, and that nobody is going to step in and do something to help those 30 to 40% of kids missing at the height of the pandemic from districts like LA United and CPD and New York City public schools. And nobody was going to step in to do something about it. No tech billionaire was going to be like, all right, let's rent a giant vacant warehouse and get computers for all these kids and little plastic cubicles so they can go to school. No one did anything. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, people tried. Like we covered San Francisco where the parents and the the mayor tried to do these parent pods, but the, the school board and the union stopped them because it, it was against, uh, yeah. You, right. Crazy. I know. Um, and uh, okay. Yeah. I'm with you on that. And I guess the last follow-up on that is why? Like, I know there's a long answer to that, but what makes us different? Is it the power of teachers unions? Is it, is it like a extreme embrace of the most sort of aggressive version of the science? I think it's three. I think it's three big, big things. I think one is teachers unions. I think that contributed. I think two is the issues we, we've talked about earlier, which is teachers were stretched their breaking point even before the pandemic hit. So they weren't ready to say, let's go to bat for these kids. Um, so it's the fragility of a system where a lot has been squeezed out of people and they found it harder and harder to, to, to live. And then I think the third issue is that public health didn't do a good job of communicating who was at risk from this virus and who wasn't. Instead, you'd still read into the waning months of this very, of the really severe pandemic that, oh, your kids could die from this. Nobody ever said, if you have healthy children, they're very, very little risk from this. And by the way, kids aren't, kids don't seem to transmit the way, the way adults do. And so our schools are actually pretty safe places. Nobody ever said that. And so I think this is where public health got it wrong, too, because parents were terrified to send their kids to school for fear of their kids coming home with COVID and dying from COVID. And nobody ever said, yeah, you're, you're, it's more likely that your kid is going to get hit by a bus on the way to school than that they're going to come home with a severe case of COVID and die from it. And that I, I think that was a huge failure of public health. And you can't separate that from the other issues we got to. Joe and I got to a fight with a guy named David Wallace Wells at the New York Times who said, well, parents, particularly underprivileged parents, didn't want to send their kids to school. Well, how do you separate that from public health messaging that school wasn't safe for their children? Right. Well, thank you so much, Bethany. This was great. Everybody get out there and get this book, The Big Fail, wherever you get your books. I hope your next book is about the education system because I think your skills would be very much needed. There's a lot of private equity involved, a lot of bad actors. A lot of bad ideas, so it'll be perfect. Thank you, for you. so much. Let's stay in touch. I really yeah. enjoyed this. Thank, thank you, thank you so much. And send me the name of that Mississippi hospital, please. Thank you, thank you. 